This episode is brought to you by Progressive. Are you driving your car or doing laundry right now? Podcasts go best when they're bundled with another activity. Like Progressive home and auto policies, they're best when they're bundled too. Having these two policies together makes insurance easier and could help you save. Customers who save by switching their home and car insurance to Progressive save nearly $800 on average. Quote a home and car bundle today at Progressive.com. Progressive Casualty Insurance Company and Affiliates. National average 12-month savings of $793 by new customers surveyed who saved with Progressive between June 2021 and May 2022. Potential savings will vary. Today's episode is brought to you by Empower. It doesn't matter how much money you have, we all have money questions. Empower is here to answer those questions so you don't have to worry. Take control of your financial future with a real-time dashboard and real live conversations to empower what's next. Start today at empower.com. Listener supported. WNYC Studios. Hey, Lulu here. Whether we are romping through science, music, politics, technology, or feelings, we seek to leave you seeing the world anew. Radiolab adventures right on the edge of what we think we know, wherever you get podcasts. This is the New Yorker Radio Hour, a co-production of WNYC Studios and The New Yorker. This is the New Yorker Radio Hour. I'm David Remnick. The movement we know as Black Lives Matter began 10 years ago in 2013 as a hashtag. We're going to look at how things have changed in that decade on today's program. Now, I've never had the experience of being followed by security in a store. I've never been stopped and frisked, wrongly accused, or manhandled by the police. But millions of people, principally black Americans, report that this kind of treatment happens to them all the time. Where earlier civil rights struggles centered on voting rights or discrimination in schooling, Black Lives Matter focused above all on policing, on excessive stops, on use of force and violence, all directed at black and brown people. And Black Lives Matter popularized the slogan, defund the police, which quickly became a matter of controversy. To try to gauge the impact of Black Lives Matter over the past decade, we're joined by Kai Wright, who's the host of WNYC's Notes from America. Ten years into the movement that emerged following Trayvon Martin's horrific killing, there's a simple question you could ask. Has there been any measurable change in addressing police violence and abuse? The answer is not simple. There have been many, many efforts at fixing this problem, but we're going to dig into three specific areas of reform. Transparency, accountability, and just tracking the problem. We gathered three experts who come at these challenges from slightly different angles. Anya Bidwell is an attorney for the Institute for Justice. Mike White is a professor of criminology at Arizona State University. And Samuel Sinyangwe is the founder of Mapping Police Violence and Police Scorecard. Samuel was in his 20s, working at a nonprofit that focused on economic and social equality when Trayvon Martin was killed. And he was used to having access to all kinds of data in his work. So after Mike Brown was killed a little later, Samuel decided, I want to create a national database that tracks the number of police fatalities. But when he got started, he found very little to work with. I asked him, why was the data so bad? So the data was so bad because the federal government was relying on a a 
program where you had 18,000 different law enforcement agencies across the country. Um, it was a voluntary program whereby the federal government was asking each of those 18,000 agencies to report uh, who, what homicides took place um, and whether those were what they call justifiable homicides, which is their word for a homicide committed by uh, the state or a homicide committed by an individual um, who, uh, you know, understand your ground laws or other, other, other cases was, was uh, deemed justifiable. You know, an article from 538 came out in, in the early weeks um, following uh, the death of Mike Brown um, that basically tore apart that, that methodology. There were websites like killbypolice.net at the time. There was a, an individual, a volunteer individual who wasn't being paid for this, who would just search um, for keywords like killing by police, police-involved killing, officer-involved shooting. And what, what that 538 article did was they looked at that list at killbypolice.net and they found that there were nearly three times as many cases on that list as what the federal government was reporting. Hundreds of homicides by law enforcement agencies between 2007 and 2012 aren't included in records kept by the Federal Bureau of Investigation. It's the findings of a- But the issue was that the work hadn't been done to really analyze that data. Many of the cases hadn't been coded by race. There was no information about the circumstances of those cases, whether the folks were armed or unarmed, um, what, what police department was responsible, um, what patterns were in the data that could help point to um, potential solutions. So a lot of the work to just basically understand and address the most fundamental questions that an emerging mass movement was demanding the fundamental question of how many people have been killed by police, um, whether things are getting better or worse, um, and what we can learn from the data in terms of solutions to ultimately reduce police violence. And Samuel, in like in as much of a nutshell, I know I don't want you, you're a data scientist, I don't want to make you be reductive about your data, but work with me. In a nutshell, what have you found? So uh, over the past 10 years, from 2013 um, through the present, what we can say is that police kill about 1,200 people every single year. And that, that didn't start when the national conversation became focused on police violence. It's something that, that has happened at a remarkably regular and constant pace, about 1,050 and 1,250 people. And Which is a remarkable every, number. Uh, yeah, absolutely. And it's about three, more than three people every single day. Um, what we also know when we unpack the data is, is how deeply systemic this issue is. We have a system of 18,000 different law enforcement agencies, each with their own uh, set of policies and practices, their own department culture. Uh, some have more or less funding, more or fewer employees. Um, that constellation of 18,000 agencies every single year kills a similar number of people, the patterns are remarkably similar year after year as well. Black people are about three times more likely to be killed than white people per population. Uh, Latinos killed between 1.5 and two times uh, at higher rate than white people per population. Native Americans also killed at a similar rate uh, as, as black people. So again, much higher than white people. Despite this centralized system, there is a repetitive outcome, um, even though it's so dispersed across the system. 
I want to get Anya and Professor White into this part of the conversation too. And Anya, you are you were nodding uh, fiercely uh, at as Samuel described the state of the data, how bad the data was um, and has been. What are the lived consequences of that? What does that mean for like the work you do, not having information like that? You know, uh, Justice Brandeis once famously said that sunlight is the best of disinfectants. Um, and transparency really is extremely important in those types of situations. And I don't think it's surprising that in many controversial topics, we don't have good data, right? For example, Second Amendment and the use of guns, that's another area where it's very hard to actually find the data. For us as lawyers, it is much easier to, uh, you know, filed complaints, filed class action lawsuits, uh, have uh, allegations in the complaint that are backed by data, that's a much stronger lawsuit that can take you uh, much farther, even though there still will be other doctrines that we'll talk about that will still make it difficult. Professor Mike, why is that the case? Why why don't we have a centralized uh, system for collecting data from, from the federal government? You know, there is an effort now to create a national level uh, use of force database. The FBI is leading that effort. It started, I believe, in 2019. Uh, it is voluntary. Um, you know, one thing I think we do need to keep in mind is that each year there are, there are more than 50 million encounters between police officers and community members across the United States. More than 50 million. The vast majority, vast majority of those encounters begin and end peacefully, and not. All of those police killings are excessive, inappropriate, unlawful uses of force. Um, some number of those police killings are justified. And so with that context in mind, Samuel, um, there's been a decade of activism and greater public conversation about this at, at minimum. Um, there's been a decade of someone like yourself saying, well, let's track this. Um is there anything that we can point to in your data that says, okay, well, this is getting better, um, or no? As Michael said, you know, this is something that policing is, is much broader than um, than those 1,200 incidents. Um, there are between six and 10 million arrests uh, made every single year, and we do see some important shifts in terms of overall uh, police contact and enforcement. Um, over the past decade, um, particularly there, there's been a, a, a substantial reduction in arrests, particularly arrests for lower level nonviolent offenses. And, you know, this is important because, you know, when we consider, you know, six to 10 million arrests, I mean, that's a lot of people. Um, if you have an arrest record that impacts your ability to, to get a job, it impacts your ability to get housing, it impacts a, a range of opportunities for you. It, it often results in incarceration, which has its own uh, negative health effects. Um, and so, uh, reductions in arrests overall, particularly for low-level offenses, have across the country over the past decade, they were accelerated um, during the pandemic, um, but have really been concentrated in some of the largest cities of, in the country. We should all agree the answer is not to defund the police. It's to fund the police. Um, and so much of that money is focused on stops and arrests um, and, and police activity and enforcement um, really targeted towards low-level nonviolent issues that are often associated with uh, crimes of poverty, um, issues of, of mental health and substance use, so drug possession, uh, loitering or vagrancy, off trespassing, 
um, crimes associated with sex work, um, so prostitution arrests, et cetera, um, have seen substantial declines across the country. Um, the cities that have made the, the largest reductions in arrests, particularly for low-level offenses, have also seen uh, some reductions in police shootings, both fatal and non-fatal, um, because there are fewer incidents that are, uh, you know, often escalate. Because you know, there's just, there's just, yeah, there's there's fewer opportunities to engage in the first place. Exactly. So, but speaking of the of the number of arrests and the inner in the engage, just the volume of engagement with police departments, one of the things that has come up in the, in the years since the Black Lives Matter movement. Uh, became part of the political conversation is body cameras and that it was supposed to be something that was, um, at least in the popular conversation, going to be, you know, hey, this helps, this gives us eyes on the interaction of all those billions of intera- millions of interactions that are happening between cops and, and everyday people. And so, uh, Professor Mike, can we start with you because you have studied this issue? Um, what actually were body cameras supposed to do? What was the argument behind body cameras? You know, many departments simply did it as a show of transparency. I can't tell you how many press conferences I saw of chiefs of police announcing the start of a body-worn camera program and saying, we're doing this because we've got nothing to hide. January 1st, 800 body cameras will be dispersed among You know, officers. simply, I don't want to be the next Ferguson. And, and then there was some early evidence that suggested if you deployed cameras, you would see reductions in use of force and complaints. There were a handful of studies that came out in 2013, 14, 15 that showed that. I think those were the primary drivers of the adoption. From all of those sort of different vantage points of people who, were th- who said, okay, this is a good idea for me, what, what have we learned? You know, the, it, it depends on which outcome you're focused on. The studies on use of force are much more mixed uh, again, about 30 studies, and only only half of those studies show a reduction in use of force uh, after cameras are deployed. So for me, the big takeaway is that you're not going to see one story with body-worn cameras being deployed in a department. Uh, there, there's too many other contextual factors that come into play. The big one being, what's the state of a police department when they deploy cameras? Um and, and that was the case in, in Ferguson. You know, within 30 days of Michael Brown's death, Ferguson police officers started wearing cameras. But you could also have a department that deploys cameras as part of just one more professional uh, activity that that department does. So the you know the the starting point of a police department is is extraordinarily important. Is it a department in trouble? And this is why they're deploying cameras, or is the department professional? Uh, and they're respectful in their their contacts with community members. They hold their officers accountable, and this is just one more thing they're doing to to maintain that level of professionalism. So I think well, to spell out like why does that? What is the distinction there in terms of what happens then? Um, you know, if it matters, which makes sense to me, it matters how they come into it. What are the how do the outcomes vary based on whether they come into it? If if a department is in trouble, so for example, the. Um, you know the the Rialto Police Department in California was the first to um, to not only deploy cameras but to rigorously study those cameras and and they showed immediate significant reductions in use of force. But that department was in significant trouble. I mean, there was some discussion about whether that department was going to get shut down by the Rialto City Council, and you have a reform chief come in who does a bunch of things, including de- deploying the cameras. Compare that to the Washington D.C. Metro Police Department, 
um, when they did their study, they didn't document any impact on use of force, but the DC Metro Police Department had been under consent decree for a decade before they deployed cameras. So the, the consent decree that was in place, the federal monitor required significant organizational change and improvement over a period of 10 years. Not surprisingly, they don't see a big reduction in use of force because I think all of the things that happened over the, the prior decade, that department was in a much better place organizationally when they deployed cameras versus a department like Rialto. Uh, but I'll tell you from experience that even when you do have video footage, uh, and if that video footage shows an officer behaving unreasonably, very often courts are still going to give qualified immunity to the officer. I have an example of a case in Arkansas uh, where a police officer held at gunpoint two children, a 12-year-old and a 14-year-old. I've got two juvenile individuals, dark hoodies and pants. And you could think if there is no footage, no video footage. You could imagine that a 14-year-old might have looked threatening and maybe older and had a mature voice, that it would have been reasonable for an officer to mistake him for an adult. But that vid video footage shows very clearly that these are children. Get on the ground. Put your, put your hands out. Right, they're answering, uh, they're complete, complying with the police officer 100%. He's yelling at them, he is pointing a gun at them, he is forcing them on the ground. And still, even with that footage, the constitutional lawsuit was dismissed because of qualified immunity. There are many different circumstances and structures under which this, this program is being implemented in various cities. In most cases uh, across the country, you know, body cameras are a tool that allows law enforcement to collect video that they then get to decide what to do with. Um, and that alone, I think, is not uh, sufficient to provide for the type of accountability that I think community members uh, expect or demand. And, and we've, we've seen this, I think, about uh, Alton Sterling in Baton Rouge. He uh, was killed by Baton Rouge Police Department. Uh, and it took years um, to actually reveal that there was uh, hidden footage that the police department kept under wraps. And finally, that footage came out years after. Um, family members were told that there was footage that exists but weren't allowed to see it. Community members were, uh, were kept in the dark about this footage. Finally, the footage came out that showed that prior to the cell phone footage that the, that the country saw, um, the officers came up to him under, with the body camera footage, showing that they pointed their gun at him, pointed it at his head, threatened to kill him, um, escalating the situation in a way that you know the cell phone footage alone didn't show. DC leaders are working to stop the crime crisis that's been plaguing our city for months. So, so in DC, uh, just this week, um, you know, they have been pushing legislation that would allow officers to review body camera footage before they write their statements about what happened in the incident. Yeah, Samuel's um, comments are well taken, and um, you know there are there are a couple of states that um, that have um, that have passed laws that that impose restrictions on the police, and so the state of California, for example, uh, passed a law requiring that every police department in the state of California release footage of critical incidents, officer-involved shootings within 45 days. It's state law. You must. Um, 
the Las Vegas Metropolitan Police Department. They release footage of uh, officer involved shootings within 72 hours of the incident. 72 hours, they'll have a press conference. They show the raw footage. And I think that's, you know, that's a tremendous show of transparency. Um, but the other thing with, you know, the the impact, I mean, think about the Tyree Nichols uh, beating. You know, those officers were wearing body cameras and, and those cameras were activated. They were recording. How could that possibly happen? It, well, it happened because those officers had no concern that they were ever going to be asked about their behavior. That's Kai Wright talking with Mike White, Anya Bidwell, and Samuel Singh Yangwe. And we'll continue in a moment. WNYC Studios is supported by Lincoln Financial. The questions around retirement have gotten tiring. Instead of, have you saved up enough? Shouldn't they be asking, what is it that you love to do? And how can we help you keep doing it? The truth is, you're not slowing down. So your retirement plan should be more of an action plan, a hiking plan, a music plan, a sailing plan. The point is, whatever you're passionate about, we can help make sure you never stop. At Lincoln Financial, we have the products to help protect and grow your financial future so you can keep doing more of what you love. Make your pastimes last a lifetime at lincolnfinancial.com slash action plan. Lincoln Financial Group, marketing name for Lincoln National Corporation and its insurance companies and broker slash dealer affiliate Lincoln Financial Distributors, Inc. Copyright 2024, Lincoln National Corporation. This episode is brought to you by Empower. Can you retire early? Will there be enough money to leave an inheritance? Do you have savings for life's important milestones? If you have money questions, Empower has answers so you don't have to worry. With a real-time dashboard and real live conversations, you can get clarity on your real-life financial goals. Join 18 million Americans and take control of your financial future to empower what's next. Start today at Empower.com. Hi, I'm Roz Chast from The New Yorker. The New Yorker Radio Hour is supported by Dana-Farber Cancer Institute. Life sustains itself by cell division. So does cancer. Breast cancer cells multiply faster because of CDK4-6 proteins. But what if we could block those proteins and stop runaway cell division? To that end, Dana-Farber laid the foundation for CDK4-6 inhibitors, drugs that are increasing the survival rate for many advanced breast cancers. Dana-Farber keeps finding new ways to outmaneuver cancer. Learn more at DanaFarber.org slash everywhere. Speaking of holding officers to account for their behavior, Anya, qualified immunity has come up a few times. This is a federal doctrine that is established via Supreme Court rulings at this point, and it gives government officials, including cops, a lot of protection from being sued for doing their job. That's the idea, right? So for police, it's in part to allow them to make these split-second decisions. And as long as they can prove that the decision they made was reasonable based on precedent, that means they're safe, right? 
And in cases where you have camera footage, very often it still makes no difference because qualified immunity very much focuses on what would have an objectively reasonable officer done, not what would have this very particular officer done. Um, well, let's talk about it on two levels. One, this is a thing that is a consequence of law. So first off, if it would have to change, this would have to be Congress would need to pass a law saying we get rid of qualified immunity. Or the Supreme Court can overturn its uh, 1982 decision and say qualified immunity doesn't apply. Or it is, like you said, Congress could do it tomorrow if it wanted to. In today's <laughs> world, uh, we, are, we are more likely looking at Congress would have to pass uh, a law that says we want to get rid of qualified immunity. So then in... Absent that, absent a, a new law, either from Congress or from the Supreme Court, what does that then mean in court for you? And, and particularly if there's been a change in the past 10 years for how to get accountability despite the existence of qualified immunity. One option that uh, private lawyers, uh, civil rights lawyers, any lawyers have also is to go to state courts and sue under state Laws. That's why Colorado, for example, after the murder of George Floyd, passed its statute saying that you can sue police officers for excessive force and qualified immunity will not be an obstacle. New Mexico was another state that passed a similar statute. In New Mexico, though, they said you, you sue police officer, but it is the municipality as the employer of the police officer that will be held liable, incentivizing municipalities and police departments to hire and train better. Anya, when we talk about the um, the way conservatives think about um, uh, about this topic, they, there's actually there, there's a there are more than one sets of views here. Also, um, you know, the Institute of, of Justice was um, found funded in in part by one of the Koch brothers, Charles Koch. How do you see the different sort of layers of understanding uh, of this and, and feeling about criminal justice reform uh, amongst conservatives? So. Uh Let's start with uh, Justice Thomas, for example, right? He and Justice Sotomayor uh, agree that qualified immunity has serious issues. And a lot of conservative jurists are also suspicious of uh, policymaking by the court, right? Uh, the original understanding of the role of the judiciary is that uh, Judges are the ones that are supposed to see whether the right was violated and then order a remedy. And then it is up to the legislative body to worry about incentives, you know, and deterrence effects and then order, uh, impose some sort of an immunities. Uh, Congress has never blessed qualified immunity in any shape or form. So conservatives and liberals are suspicious of qualified immunity, perhaps for different reasons, but they end up often agreeing with each other. We understand that maybe qualified immunity shouldn't be as big of a burden when you sue a mayor, but when it comes to police officer, maybe it should be a big burden because police officers often act in the heat of the moment. So there is also that other part of conservative bench that's worried about those kind of repercussions. Which, you know, I mean, that points us to some really fundamental questions that kind of swirl in this debate. There is a difference between reducing crime at any cost and keeping the public safe, but also in keeping police officers safe. Um, and it sort of depends on what politically you have centered. And I guess the bottom line is, can we do all three? <laughs> can all three of these things happen? Can you keep, can you reduce crime, keep the public safe, and uh, keep police officers safe? Yes, 
Yes, as long as we have uh, the, the the system of checks and balances that operates properly, right? So, for example, in my field, when it comes to people being able to sue and, as a result, keep government officials accountable, um, it's it's great when courts are the ones that are looking at whether the law was violated and then ordering a remedy for the individual. But then it is absolutely up to the political legislative branches to look at whether there need to be some protections implemented through laws that would protect police officers, for example. If everybody does what they're supposed to do, then we can actually have a win-win-win situation. I think Anya's right. I think the structures are there to deliver on all three of those, the principles of a, a police accountability are, are well known. You know, that starts with, you know, good recruitment and selection of officers, train them properly, supervise them, hold them accountable when they make mistakes. We've known that for decades. If you're the chief of police, you have to deliver on that. Samuel, what about you? I think one of the things that's most uh, interesting uh, about this issue is that, you know, when you look from the perspective of officer safety, use of force incidents are situations where officers are often injured as well. I mean, the number one uh, form of police contact in the United States is traffic stop. If you travel outside the United States, I mean, there are many, many countries, whether it's South Korea, Italy, where you you could drive for hours and hours and never see a police officer on the roads. They have a completely different system where in, in many cases they have automated enforcement, they don't find it necessary um, for somebody with a gun to intervene in your life for you know running a stop sign or having a broken taillight or having you know an air freshener hang from your rearview mirror and you know at the end of the day you know there are a range of different alternative approaches to some of these issues many of which are now being piloted and scaled up successfully data is starting to come in from some of these approaches like in San Francisco where they're sending uh, mental health uh, professionals uh, to crisis calls instead of the police. Um, they're doing the same thing in Portland, in New York. They they announced a program, although it hasn't really scaled. So so again, I think there's a win-win here where by finding and, and funding and scaling alternatives um, that can successfully intervene and, and resolve and de-escalate situations without the need for police, fundamentally ad- addressing the underlying uh, root cause issues that are continue to perpetuate this issue. And that, you know, that makes me wonder about just again, on a fundamental level, thinking about the, 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 the cultural conversation around this. We now have this new word in, in political culture of abolition. Um, it's not a new, new, new word in movement spaces, but in the political culture as a consequence of electoral politics, there is a, there, there is a broader conversation about, well, why don't we just get rid of police departments altogether? Why can't we just abolish police? Um, and I, I, and I want to hear each of you talk about how you think about your work in that context. Do you consider it part of an abolition movement? Um, and if not, what is your relationship to that idea in your work? Sure. So, um, you know, I, I am an abolitionist. I, I believe in abolition. I think to to get there. Um, we need to be evidence-based about it. We need to be data-informed and we need to know how what we're talking about is essentially building a new systems of care and support um, for community members who are currently experiencing hardship and crisis um, and situations where the police are being called into. 
Um, and that takes time. Like that, that is, uh, you know, there are, there are many issues and, and challenges that need to be overcome with, with uh, resourcing and training and equipping uh, such a, such an infrastructure to be able to take on that responsibility. Um, but I think, but I think that when we see, when we look at what's happening in cities that have begun to go down uh, this route incrementally, you know, I talked about uh, the mental health first response programs. Um, you know, you have in San Francisco right now, uh, mental health responders are being called in uh, to the majority of mental health calls. Um, and that's that's huge, right? So it sounds to me like, Samuel, part of what you're saying here is like, well, thinking of abolition as simply a way, let's reduce the number of things that police are doing, um, as opposed to somebody who's better equipped for it. What about you, Professor Mike? What do you have a relationship to this idea of abolition? Does that work? Does it relate to your work at all? Or how do you think about it? Yeah, I mean, you know, when you think about that term, that means, for me, that means eliminating the police. And that's a non-starter for me. Um, who am I going to call when my house is burglarized or, or, you know, someone shoplifts from my store um, or somebody assaults me? Uh, but that said, there was a, a part of the defund movement that made a ton of sense to me, which is what we've heard from both Anya and, and, and Samuel today is take a part of the police business that they're not properly trained for and give that to somebody else. And the the co-response models that, uh, that Samuel was talking about is a good example of that. And so take part of the budget too. And this has happened in, in Los Angeles and New York City. Take a chunk of the police budget away from the police. Uh, use that money uh, to either create some new organization or give it to an existing agency so that they can take on that part of the police business. Uh, that resonates with me. And, and I, you know, I've talked to, to dozens of police officers who say the same thing. We would love if somebody else could could handle that work so that we don't have to. Uh, you know, and, and the one area now where police are increasingly responding is opioid overdoses. And and that's why some officers are now carrying Narcan. So now they're, they're acting as, you know, emergency physicians to, uh, you know, to deal with that. You know, the other thing that Samuel said is this needs to be evidence-based. So I don't think we can just jump in um, without, you know, being thoughtful and without some empirical research that suggests that, you know, this is the, this is a good idea. This is, there's evidence to suggest that we're going to have, you know, positive results when we do this. Anya, does, does the idea of abolition, is it relevant to your work? So I just want to say, um, I definitely don't want to abolish the police. Um, as you can hear from my accent, I grew up in the former Soviet Union, uh, in the nineties where police was essentially not present. And, uh, my house was burglarized many times and people assaulted me on the street many times and police officers were nowhere to be found. So, uh, I do believe in this idea that police officers serve a very important function. But also from my background, I believe in this idea of citizens being able to stand up to the government when the government hurts them, right? And that's where this idea of being able to sue government officials, including police officers, when they violate your constitutional rights. So you can actually take uh, this destiny in your own hands, go to the court and file a complaint and not worry about about some sort of a retribution by the powerful, be able to sue them and hold them to account not only for yourself, but also to make sure that the system works better. Also, for all three of you as we wrap up, what do you think the movement for Black lives over the past, let's call it a decade, has done that other social movements before that didn't 
do um, that has made any that has shifted a conversation around policing or awareness of policing? And the answer maybe could be nothing. Um, but do you, do you do you think something different happened in the course of this movement from the perspective of somebody doing the work, Anya? I think uh, yes. Uh, the movement has been very effective in communicating its ideas, and it's also been helped by the time and place of this moment, right? It's not only body cameras, but it's also citizens with phones being able to record uh, what's happening. Uh, I think, for example, with George Floyd, what really resonated is that video where uh People were just, you know, they stopped what they were doing and they watched this horrible thing happen. Nobody had to tell them that. They saw it for themselves. And that's a really, really important part of um, uh, kind of the change of our, in our thinking. And and to that effect, there's actually a very important case that is trying to get up to the Supreme Court right now. And that's whether police officers can prevent you as a citizen from recording uh their interaction with a suspect. So that that could very much affect that. But I do think that uh, BLM has been an incredibly infe- effective messenger, and also this place and time is helping the message to go farther. Yeah. It's all it, it, it's it's a a a perfect storm uh, of cultural contexts, um, Professor Mike. Yeah, I agree. Uh, because of all the other things that that have been happening, it's it's hard to disentangle and say that you know Black Lives Matter is responsible for this or that. But I, I you know, I agree with Anya. I think you know they provide they have provided a, a very powerful, consistent, collective voice uh, that that demands uh, attention. And you know, I know chiefs of police that that view Black Lives Matter as as uh, valuable partners now. Samuel, thinking back to you as that 24-year-old um, uh, who saw George Zimmerman getting acquitted and thinking, oh man, this could have been me. The movement that has grown up since then, um, and here I want to be clear, I'm not talking about Black Lives Matter, the organization. I mean this, the larger movement for Black Lives in this conversation. What what about that is it what about that was a fundamental shift um, if you saw one? Uh, in in the work of reforming police, so I think that you know over the past decade there has been a fundamental shift in the conversation, such that now it has become almost undeniable um, that that police violence is real, that it is disproportionately impacting Black and Brown communities, especially Black communities, and that you know this is something that is is bigger than any one two or three you know quote unquote bad apple officers or one two or three problematic police departments that this is uh, an issue that is much closer to home than i think uh many people especially people in 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 communities in power and privilege were aware of more willing to admit uh, a decade ago that this is something that is happening in your city in your state not just you know in on tv in minneapolis that the shift in the conversation has also produced some real tangible seeds of progress. Um, not wholesale shifted, I think, the, the, the bottom line indicator of you know, how many people are being harmed or killed by the police. Um, but I do think that there have been some important seeds of progress that, that set us up for the next phase of the conversation. We will have to leave it with that. All three of you, thank you for your work and thank you for this conversation. Thank you. Thank you very much. Thanks very much. 
That's Kai Wright, the host of Notes from America, which airs on public radio stations on Sunday evenings. And we heard from Samuel Sinyangwe, the creator of Mapping Police Violence, along with Anya Bidwell, an attorney for the Institute for Justice, and Mike White, a professor of criminology at Arizona State University. I'm David Remnick, and that's our program for today. I want to thank you for joining us. See you next time. The New Yorker Radio Hour is a co-production of WNYC Studios and The New Yorker. This episode was produced by Max Balton, Adam Howard, Kalalia, David Krasnow, Jeffrey Masters, and Louis Mitchell. With guidance from Emily Botin and assistance from Michael May, David Gable, and Alejandra Deckett. The New Yorker Radio Hour is supported in part by the Chirina Endowment Fund. Music in this hour was composed and performed by Gray Reverend. This episode was brought to you by Empower. Are you ready for life's important milestones? What will your retirement look like? Do you know your net worth? Empower can help answer your money questions so you don't have to worry. With a real-time dashboard and real live conversations, you can get clarity on your real-life financial goals. Join 18 million Americans and take control of your financial future to empower what's next. Start today at empower.com.